Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Okay, so good afternoon everyone and welcome to today's webinar hosted by the University of Bath Institute for Policy Research and the Centre for Death and Society. Uh, thank you for joining us online and I'm delighted to be joined by John Troyer today. Dr. John Troyer is the, the director of the Centre for Death and Society at the University of Bath. He's a co-founder of the Death Reference Desk website, the Future Cemetery Project, and a frequent commentator for the BBC. His new book, Technologies of the Human Corpse, was published by the MIT Press in May 2020, and he grew up in the American funeral industry. Today, he will be discussing the AIDS pandemic and COVID-19. The HIV AIDS pandemic that began in the latter part of the 20th century set the stage for many of the current COVID-19 social policy dynamics and general public expectations. In thinking through the off-sighted age of COVID-19, it's important to continue rethinking the AIDS pandemic and what it teaches us today. How might public policy agendas reconcile with the grief and rage of families watching loved ones die due to coronavirus complications? And how does the fact that the AIDS pandemic is still happening impact what the future of COVID-19 might become? So thank you all again for joining us and I'll now kick off today's discussion by handing over to John. All right, Sarah, thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate uh, introducing me. I'm going to gra grab the screen here. Okay, um, so welcome everyone. Uh, I'd, I'd like to thank everyone for, for coming uh, today uh, and for um, attending this talk and thank the, the IPR uh, for um, this invitation to speak um, today about both about um, COVID-19 and the HIV AIDS epidemic. So like Sarah said, uh, my name is uh, John Troy, I'm the director of the Center for Death and Society. And when I was first speaking with uh, Amy and, and Sophie at uh, the IPR about uh, sort of a joint new project with CDAS on COVID-19 um, themes, uh, one of the areas I was interested in and remain interested in was um, sort of like the ongoing legacy of the HIV AIDS uh, epidemic and pandemic, in part because there is research I do in my own work on the AIDS epidemic and its relationship to um, death and dying and also uh, the dead body, but also too because of, of different, um, I would say resonances, not so much direct similarities, and we'll get into this idea of similarities in just a second uh, between HIV AIDS and um, and COVID-19. So again, thank you for coming. I'm more than happy to field questions uh, at any point um, uh, toward the end, pardon me, uh, around any questions around um, both um, what I'm talking about today, but also just COVID-19 questions in general uh, and the impact uh, around death and dying if people have them as, as we've seen them. So the Center for Death and Society um, was founded in 2005 at the University of Bath. Many of you will probably know about CDAS, but CDAS uh, was, was uh, launched in the Department of Social and Policy Sciences uh, and uh, is an interdisciplinary study center working on all things around death, dying, the dead body. Uh, I joined uh, the university in CDAS in 2008 and have been director since uh, 2015. And CDAS remains really one of the world's only interdisciplinary study centers around um, these topics. Uh, and we have a, a year annual uh, list of events. I think many of these events this coming year uh, will be a mix of both online and uh, uh, if you will, physical space seminars, although we're still trying to figure that out. And a lot of the work will be uh, around COVID-19 and experiences that our, our friends and colleagues have had around that. Uh, we do have a monthly newsletter uh, through the um, that comes out for each month. So if you go to um, bath.ec.uk.cdas.cdas, uh, uh, you can email in uh, a request to be on the newsletter. So I, I just quickly wanted to say that I so I am originally from the U.S. I'm from the state of Wisconsin. Uh, in the north, and I'll show you where that is. So uh, this is a data project uh, that was done a couple years ago. I won't spend too much time on it, a few years ago, looking at online obituaries that show the most common expression used to say that someone has died. Uh, and um, it, was a, it was a way of seeing how different states say it. So Wisconsin is up in the middle north, was called home, uh, is the state of Wisconsin. Uh, many of you will see it. This is, I don't have the luxury of a laser pointer now. I these things out. But I, I'm actually in Wisconsin right now. Uh, I'm in my parents' house. I've been here uh, since March. Uh, I came here to help my, um, help my mother with some medical appointments. She's fine. Also, my father had some medical uh, uh, issues earlier in the year. 
Uh, so I was here to help them both with that. And as a result of COVID-19 have, have um, been stuck here in Wisconsin since. Uh, now, it, that has presented its own interesting um, challenges. However, um, it has also been interesting to, to be a carer for my parents, uh, although they're both fine. Um, everything worked out uh, during the time. Anyway, so I'm in Wisconsin and happy to field any questions about what's going on in America right now. Anyone has any questions? Um, my own work, I just wanted to say very quickly, has always been more around the dead body and technology. And so a lot of the work I started around dead body technology uh, is, is really um, comes out of the 19th century. In 19th century interests in embalming, but also uh, preservation of the dead through, through processes like embalming, but also photography. And this was a, 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 an important, uh, for my own research, embalming advertisement using a photographed dead body uh, from the early 20th century for bisga embalming fluid. Um, I'm not gonna be talking about that so much today, but this idea of preserving the dead and what the dead uh, could look like or should look like in the American context, but in American context that begins to spread out around the world, uh, that, that becomes relevant uh, in the 1980s when we talk about what the HIV AIDS corpse presents as a challenge to the, to the funeral industry. Uh, in America, but then then more globally. So in May of this year, uh, I had, had a book that came out and MIT Press would be um, very upset if I didn't mention my new book, Technologies of the Human Corpse. And in, in, in that book, in chapter three in particular, uh, I, I take a look at what I refer to as the HIV AIDS corpse in part because that corpse represented a real transitional moment uh, in both concepts of death and dying, but also just a lot of social policies around caring for the dead or what health policy, uh, what basic um, industrial or um, occupational policy should be for caring for the dead as a result of the HIV virus. And the HIV virus then represents a, a sort of a crucial turning point in how disease becomes something that is negotiated uh, in the latter part of the 20th century in terms of technologies for dealing with um, the dead. And by dealing with the dead, I mean how they're prepared, what happens, embalming, but also presentations, but also just things like infection. Uh, and it, it, this is the, you'll, we'll see this image again. This was a, a key um, publication in 1992 by the National Funeral Directors Association in America. It's sort of the, the sibling of the, in the UK, we have the National Association of Funeral Directors. But here in the States, the National Funeral Directors Association uh, was uh, trying to figure out, was struggling, was in the middle of a, a huge um, uh, rush to, to come up with guidelines and protocols for dealing with uh, individuals who had died from or to create funerals or to help families for individuals who had died from uh, complications from HIV AIDS. And so you, have, you find these publications in the early 90s in which... Um, late 80s, early 90s, in which there's a, a, um, a, real, um, a real struggle with, with the available data and what, what is known and what is unknown, but also to what, what can be done to, to create something like a funeral as, we had, as it had been understood before the moment of AIDS. And this is something that has come up quite a bit in the context of um, uh, the coronavirus itself. I'll come back to the, the, the director image um, later on uh, in a, just a little bit because it, it, it then creates, a, I think, a further series of ripples for what we're talking about today. Um, in the context of AIDS, it's always important to remember that as AIDS becomes a, a global epidemic and then pandemic, and a pandemic that, that is with us today, if you're a person of a certain age like I am and of a certain generation, then the, the impact of AIDS and this idea of there being something like a, like a World AIDS Day, which starts in the, the mid 90s, uh, the idea of the Red Ribbon, it becomes, a, uh, it becomes a real anchor point in trying to understand the social and cultural experiences of disease. Now these, these are different across what I would say are the developing and the developed world of the global north and the global south, however we wanna think about these things. But nonetheless, there's this idea that there is this uh, flashpoint of AIDS that creates a whole new kind of cultural uh, dynamics that have in many ways um, become part of the history of disease, I would say, within the West. But in large part, many of them have been forgotten um, outside of the people who are themselves living with HIV or working in the field, 
itself. But nonetheless, there was a real um, push for the recognition of how um, a entire global dynamic of uh, cultural interaction was changed by the disease itself. So I want to talk just in the about death today, if we can think about death today, in the context of where I think a lot of the discourse we have around death today comes from, which is both a product of a lot of HIV AIDS work, but also I think a product of a lot of work before the, before the 1980s and the 1970s, which I think is a key um, a decade to set the stage for how we can talk about things like disease or HIV AIDS today. So the, the 1970s, certainly in the West, but more, this is more specifically America, and I, I want to be clear about that, really starts with you know, the 1970s, you have President Richard Nixon declaring the war on cancer. Uh, by the end of the decade, um, the 19, by 1979, spilling over to 1980, you have um, President Jimmy Carter uh, creating a presidential commission to try and come up with a, a determination or a definition of, of death. A lot of this comes from the, um, the development of life support technology and how life support technology is radically reorganizing what we think of as, as dead or, or what the definition of death could be. For those of you, those of you who work in bioethics, um, of which my own background merges into bioethics, uh, the, president's, the presidential commission that um, that Jimmy Carter creates does become the President's Commission on Bioethics uh, for many presidents. Interestingly enough, just as a sort of factoid for US politics today, uh, President uh, Donald Trump has yet to name a presidential uh, bioethics commission. And there's some, some discussion about whether or not he would ever do that. Um, but I think that in the 70s, we begin to see this merger of, of a whole opening up of the question of like, well, what is dead? When does, when does death happen? What can death be? It's also when we begin to see this movement towards a radical life extension, uh, where this idea that we humans have now mastered technology and science and medicine in such a way that we can live uh, for uh, almost forever if we want to. And Bob Ettinger publishes a very important book in the 60s in this regard uh, around the idea of um, cryonics through the prospect of immortality. He creates his cryonics institute, this idea you can cryogenically preserve yourself and then be brought back at a future point. No one knows when that future point will be, but through technology, we will solve the problem. And I think that this idea of technology solving the problem becomes a, a crucial um, uh, way of thinking uh, for humans interacting with disease, but also with novel viruses such as the coronavirus. And this is an idea of what that, what the, this is a different facility in the, the Southwest of America called Alcor. This is the idea of what the, the preserved human body would, would look like. There's also another important book that comes up uh, in the 70s, and I wanna flag this up in part because I think Lynn Laughlin's um, book is a great way of thinking through um, discourse and ideas, but also language that helps shapes policy uh, around death and dying. It's her book, The Craft of Dying, The Modern Face of Death, comes out in 78. It, uh, MIT Press, uh, was, I was able to convince them to reissue it, and I highly recommend getting it. It's in, the, it's in the library at the University of Bath, but also it's a good book to have on hand. Uh, and um, just to, for uh, for the to be clear about, it, I did write a new introduction. But there's a, an excellent epilogue by R. Francis, who was a uh, graduate student, one of uh, R. Francis's last graduate students um, in California, who worked with uh, Lynn Laughlin. But Laughlin, I think, in the 1970s, identifies um, death as a social movement, and that creates. Uh, a new understanding of how death itself can become part of social uh, politics and then how that politics then plays into to policy. And so what, what Lynn Laughlin will describe the 1970s as creating is something she'll say is a happy death movement. The happy death movement is not a pejorative. What she'll describe this is as, as activists who want to encourage discussion around death and dying and that these discussions are very important uh, to encourage uh, conversations around death. Uh, and that this is the idea of the happy warrior. Uh, it's also a series of movements come out of this, of this that many of which are with us today. Um, this idea of a natural death movement where you can choose to uh, not seek further treatment and die. Death awareness movements, death acceptance movements, death with dignity movements. Uh, a lot of what we would regard as being um, assisted dying uh, um, groups really begin to emerge in this moment. But it's, it's a moment of politics in which you have a, a sort of a collective social movement that is in many ways modeled after uh, the women's movement and the early environmental movement. 
And these movements uh, in all their own ways begin to see death as a, a, a social phenomena that needs to be rethought in terms of its, its policy and practice and how death can be made fairer, how death can be made um, uh, more autonomous in terms of decision-making. And in the, throughout the 1970s, you, you see a deluge of, of new materials that are published. So you have books and films and newsletters. It's a, it's, a large, it's a large outpouring of materials, many of which have, have kind of been forgotten about in large part because a lot of it hasn't been digitized or it's just not in a digital format. Um, but nonetheless, the material is there. You begin to see the creation of academic courses at universities, courses around the psychology of death, the, the sociology of death, psychology of death, sociology of death are both areas the University of Bath teaches today still. But you begin to see a, a, real, a, a real groundswell around interest in these topics. Uh, and importantly, as building on from the 1960s, and this is, this is where the UK becomes crucial, you begin to see the creation and, and the understanding that there need to be things like dying places or, or around the idea of home death or hospices. And this comes from Cicely Saunders' work at St. Christopher's in London uh, in 64. She begins to create this idea. So by the 1970s, you begin to see the, the understanding that hospices are important uh, as a radical, in some ways politically radical space where people will go to die. So the hospice becomes um, a, a phenomenon to itself. And in 1970-71, you begin to see the first hospices um, established, for example, in North America, in the, in the U.S., particularly on the East Coast and on the West Coast. And how this is done, Laughlin will talk about, is through talking about death, what she calls death talk. And that in the happy death movement, the emphasis is really placed on people discussing death, wanting to work around death, but then public conversations around death informing how policymakers are making decisions around what should be done to create, if you will, a better way to die. Uh, and a lot of that, a lot of those models are still with us today in terms of public advocacy, public action groups, uh, special interest groups, however you want to position it, but nonetheless, there's this idea that there needs to be more discussion around death. Um, and that the happy death movement will, will I think, quite clearly um, manifest in lots of different directions. Uh, but then one of the questions that comes up as a result of it, so like, so what happened? Where did, the, where did this idea of the happy death, death movement go or how did it change? I would say it's still with us today, but I think that there's, there's a crucial follow-on event then from the 1970s, and that, of course, brings us back to AIDS. So through the 1970s, you have this, you have both this political interest, you have this political uh, discussion around um, uh, death as a both um, social activist point, but also as a policy agenda item. Uh, so for example, the Natural Death Act in California is passed, the Natural Death Act uh, in 1976 was, was brought forward to give people the legal right uh, to, re to resist treatment so that they could die a more natural death. But AIDS represents a, a flashpoint in which suddenly you had a, a new disease uh, largely um, impacting initially uh, gay men and also intravenous as drug users. And so you had a cultural politics that was built around uh, trying to understand what was going to happen in um, populations that were already um, uh, politically uh, on the, um, the sidelines, or certainly we were not in the, the mainstream population of, of the US or around the world for that matter, but that the politics of, uh, of it was such that because of, of the way that the, the virus or the, the pandemic, the epidemic initially was working, it required a, a, a simply a new kind of activism. And that activism around AIDS, but also that, that the, in the, the push to inform or to change policy comes in large part from uh, the, the activities of the 1970s. So my argument is that in the 1970s, you create a sort of a political social action platform that then gets moved into the 1980s and it doesn't fit, um, it, it's not a perfect fit, but it works well in trying to raise awareness around something like AIDS. So we come back to the, to, the, to the AIDS epidemic in the funeral industry. And if you can say anything about, about 
epidemics in general, pandemics in general, is that um, you know there will be differences in how the viruses um, affect the body. But if it's a novel virus in particular, that means people will die. And indeed, I was interviewed um, early on about the um, the coronavirus, and and uh, reporters trying to ask me, you know, well, what do you think is going to happen? What's going how's this all going to play out? And I said, you know, I, I don't know. Um, honestly, I don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you this, that because this is a, a novel virus, it, I can tell you that people will die because there's just not the, the immune, um, the immunity to the virus itself. And as a result, um, there are going to be, you know, changes to how we think about what happens with the dead body. And in many ways, that's, that's exactly what happened. So when we think about the, the, um, HIV, and we think about the coronavirus, a couple of quick things about that. Um, they're different viruses, and I think that there's a danger in trying to, to too closely compare uh, the periods we're going through, or certainly virologically compare the two things. So this is the HIV virus. Uh, that's um, the coronavirus. Uh, and as viruses, they are, as you would guess from these depictions of <laughs> somewhat similar. But Robert Gallo, who was one of the early HIV virus um, uh, and, um, researchers from the back 1980s. He had a great quote about this in the New York Times uh, where he said, you know, HIV and the coronavirus, they're similar, but it's sort of like comparing a squirrel and a rabbit. And I think that's fair because I think that the, the viruses themselves have interacted with the bodies differently. Uh, the way that they're, they're transmitted is clearly different. Uh, interestingly enough, I will say that it, it, this has been forgotten about that in the early 90s, there was, there was real concern um, that shows up in the literature around what happens if HIV becomes airborne. Uh, and there was, you know, a lot of thinking around this idea that, that how, how problematic that, that itself would, you know, become. But what comes out of the, I think, the, the AIDS epidemic itself um, and through different, um, you know, groups trying to address different things, but particularly in the gay community, is... Uh, a world of activism that is in many ways represented first through uh, healthcare. Um, and one of the first groups to pop up around this was in New York City, the Gay Men's Health Crisis or GMHC, which still goes, but was really trying to pioneer uh, home care or healthcare or home-based healthcare, particularly end-of-life care for individuals who are dying from HIV. Um, but then also uh, a follow-on group, uh, which was ACT UP, which was the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was a, a much more um, aggressive um, direct action, social action group to, to raise awareness uh, around HIV AIDS, but also the, the try to raise awareness around um, medications, treatments, whatever might happen um, around HIV and trying to help create a, a, um, a food and drug administration, for example, in the States um, that was working more quickly to develop treatments. A lot of this comes out of a um, social activism that within um, LGBTQ community that is trying to address um, longstanding wrongs of, of negligence over care, but AIDS really brought that um, to the fore. And so there's, what you get is, you, you get through this idea, and this is where the idea of rage came from that I was talking about in, um, in the, the abstract of the talk, is that there's this idea that there needs to be uh, a direct political uh, uh, attention drawn to the disease because the social policy people, particularly elected representatives, um, were, not, were not addressing the disease. And it goes without saying that, that Ronald Reagan, uh, George H. Uh, w. Bush, uh, as well as Margaret Thatcher, for that matter, um, AIDS was just something they didn't they didn't talk about, uh, and that that within the the political arena of where you know politics meets policy, it was simply determined that that individuals were dying at such a rate that it became impossible uh, to not say anything. Um, there's a really good film on this. I, I wanted to put this in because there, uh, there's a, a narrative film. It's a fiction film, 120 BPM, which is a French film. Uh, and came out a couple years ago, which is a, a film about the, the Paris ACT UP movements in the early 1990s. I was a little bit leery about going to see it um, when I saw it, but actually it, it's, it's a good film. If anyone's looking for a film that, that in narrative film, non-documentary, there's a number of documentaries, people how to survive the plague that are very good about this period of time too. But this was a film that I thought, I think captured a lot of the politics around 
um, what was going on with ACT UP and it, it's, its ideas of trying to change the pharmaceutical uh, companies, but also just general policies around uh, drug treatments. Um, one of the figures that looms large in all this, and I, I'm going to bring him in, is, is Larry Kramer, in uh, part because he just he recently died. So Larry Kramer helped co-found the Gay Men's Health Crisis and then co-found ACT UP and was, um, in some ways, has become kind of a figurehead for these organizations, although I think that's a bit unfair, particularly with ACT UP, which was a, a, a really diverse organization of lots of different um, people from lots of different backgrounds. Um, but nonetheless, it was uh, it was Larry Kramer who you know love him and hate him, who really um, pushed uh, people. This is a photo from his a very famous speech of his, um, where he was just kept repeating the word plague, uh, that was um, as he described um, AIDS. But also too, and this this is where the U.S. politics in this becomes interesting in terms of. Um, medical treatment and sort of social care policy around that is that, of course, uh, the, the two figures that become um, two key talking heads as we were arguing about this on live television back in the 1980s were um, uh, Tony Fauci and then um, Kramer himself. Now, of course, Anthony Fauci, Tony Fauci is in the news here again with the coronavirus. Uh, and Tony Fauci will say that that at the time, what ACT UP was doing and what um, um, Kramer and his colleagues were trying to create was itself new for many people working in the, the sort of the drug and treatment side, that it nonetheless, it, it did change things for the better. And that, that within both healthcare policy, but also this idea of treatment for infectious disease, that groups like um, ACT UP did really create uh, a dynamic that in the end helped a lot of people. And so I think that, that that's where this idea of, of an activism around trying to advocate for care comes from. This gets picked up, of course, in lots of different groups. You could look at, at uh, a women's health movement around cancer, um, but also then other groups around Alzheimer's, um, other groups around end-of-life care. There's a long list of ways that this also, I think, takes on different forms that aren't necessarily specific to different um, uh, epidemics or viruses in that way. Uh, but in this, through this course of action, then of course you get social activism that, for example, what ACT UP did in a number of instances were things like die-ins, um, historical factoid around die-ins. Die-in actually is, this has been much debated among scholars of, of uh, if you will, social movement politics, but it's believed that the first official die-ins uh, actually started as a, as a product of the early environmental movement in the late 60s, so 69 or so into the early 70s, but then the die-in becomes this method that's used to show uh, the impact of some particular topic. And so this die-in becomes a, a crucial moment. This is a, a big one in San Francisco, where the idea is you obstruct traffic or you try to shut down daily life to draw attention. Uh, to what is what is going on. The other thing that comes out of the virus, and I, I think that when we think about these um, these areas going forward with 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 COVID nineteen and, and the coronavirus, is there was also another a, a move to try and understand how can um, public attention be drawn to the scale of the um, of the deaths. And so one one thing that was developed uh, in the 19, um, 1980s was something called the Names Project quilt, or sometimes just called the, the AIDS quilt. And it was a large uh, arts and crafts style, American arts and crafts style um, uh, memorial in which you had three foot by six foot, and we'll get closer images in a bit, of um, different uh, quilt uh, pieces that were all joined together. And by the time it, it was finally fully displayed in, in 1996. So this is, I should say, Washington, D.C. in 1988. Um, that's Central Park in New York in 1993. And that is Washington, D.C. In, in 1996. So by the time it's finally displayed for the last time in full in 1996, and so those of you who know D.C., that's the, the Capitol Mall. And so that's the Capitol building right there. You've all seen in films. And it stretched all the way across the mall down to the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, and it's um, uh, over 50,000 individual um, uh, square um, or oblong rectangular um, um, pieces as covering over 105,000 individuals. Uh, and the idea was in, in trying to capture the scale of what had happened with, with AIDS and HIV. Um, and it, 
sadly, or one, one thing to say about it is that it kind of got caught up in its own politics, and so it sort of disappeared. So those of us who are, again, of a certain age generation, I would say, who grew up around a lot of the politics around this will we'll remember the quilt, but then it got caught up in a kind of like ownership dispute, and then it, it kind of got shelved and disappeared. Although a couple of years ago then, um, in 2014, uh, I was able to see it. Uh, I was able to see the quilt um, in New York City. I was doing a, uh, I was a scholar in residence at a museum in um, New York. And it happened to be on display in a place called Governor's Island, which is off the, the um, uh, off of Manhattan. You go to it by ferry. And this is a close-up image of what uh, the, um, the quilt looks like in terms of a lot of the artistry that went into it. Sometimes it was just a simple name. Uh, that was all that people could do. And sometimes I didn't even a last name, it was just a first name. Uh, and there were a lot of people who were initially put on there like that. But but the quilt itself became a, a real flashpoint for trying to remember th those who died. And that's an aerial view of what that one section looked like that, that particular day. Um, but I, I want to bring everyone's attention to, I think, an interesting political, historical political point on this, which is, so this was New York in, in um, 19, or 2014. Uh, this was the quilt on display in New York in Central Park in 1993. So 1993, Central Park, um, it was an enormous event, front page of the New York Times. By the time you get to 2014, it's on Governor's Island. And this is, this is what the island looked like. Uh, smaller portion, you had to get to it by ferry. Uh, and if I'm honest with you about it, and this I think is how sometimes these dynamics can change around different kinds of uh, public perceptions of diseases, I will tell you, it did feel like going to a plague island. Uh, to see the um, to see the quilt in that that uh, there in that way, uh, it did feel like it had been, um, if you will, uh, shunted off to the side or marginalized in a way that I think had this been done in the 1990s, there would have been big public protests around it. Uh, and um, uh, the what was striking about this was that how how quickly it seemed to have been forgotten. Uh, how quickly the impact had seemed to have been forgotten um, about the quilt itself and, and its impact in trying to draw attention uh, to the impact of AIDS. So in the last sort of chunk of time now, what I want to talk about, having gone through this history and kind of rehearsed it in lots of different ways, and I, I want to say very quickly that it's also, I think, important to, to say that while I'm, I've been talking about AIDS and I, in talking about the HIV AIDS and sort of setting up what happened then, there's a lot of different periods of different kinds of infection, but certainly starting in the 1970s that you could draw on. You could look at Legionnaire's disease. You could look at any number of different diseases. SARS certainly has come up, MERS, um, Ebola, uh, you know, sort of speeding through the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s that have had impacts, I think, on how um, disease and disease, if you want to think about policy, has, has been decided. Um, but for me, I think the 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 HIV AIDS epidemic, but also then pandemic um, as it results today has always been important because it's still happening. And so we can think about, you know, the thing about the, the, the AIDS pandemic is we're looking at 32, maybe 38 million. There's some back and forth about the numbers of people who've died from it. Uh, and so it's still happening, it hasn't changed, but what has changed has been, it has become a manageable, treatable uh, um, virus, but one that remains terminal. And I think that the what comes out of the what comes out of the social policy experience, but also just the political experience of HIV/AIDS, uh, is the role that activism played in drawing attention uh, to inequalities, but also marginalization of different communities uh, that were being deeply impacted um, by the, the virus itself. So, what happens now? Jumping ahead, what happens now? Well, I think a, a couple things. One is, uh, I can tell you that there will be a move to try and at some point memorialize something like the coronavirus. Um, what, what that becomes, we don't know. We're too in the middle of it. Uh, we're too, um, I think, in the middle of trying to figure out what the coronavirus will become. It remains a novel virus. Uh, we're in the wilderness, uh, as I was describing it earlier before the, the conversation started or in, in speaking with um, um, my colleagues about it. However, uh, one iconic image that has emerged so far, maybe it'll stay, maybe it won't, will be something like the face mask. And this was a, 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 um, a collage of face masks 
that New York City created of used face masks that were, instead of being disposed, were put together that way. Maybe, maybe not. I do know that local museums, Bristol Museum, particularly Bath Museum too, different museums in Bath, they are collecting uh, objects and artifacts uh, to sort of record this time uh, as, as, a, as a human event. Um, one uh, memorial that I, I like to draw people's attention to because I think it's very important, and I think it, it's important because it, it is an ongoing uh, project, is a digital memorial. And digital memorials are a bit tricky because they do have a tendency to disappear, um, but nonetheless will remain um, uh, more easily updated than, than fixed physical memorials. But this is a memorial of health and social care workers who had died from COVID-19, which is run by the, the Nursing Notes website. And it's a very clever, but also I think quite moving memorial because what they've done, and you'll see at the bottom of the, the slide there, they've color coded different individuals um, into different professions within the bro broader world of social care. And then uh, located them using Google, it's a Google map. Uh, they've just uh, located them across the UK as to where they've died. Uh, the, as it stands right now, 247 individuals have died. Uh, and uh, the Nursing Notes website started this pretty quickly. And it, it's one of what will, I'm sure, be many that are simply trying to draw attention to different groups that have died uh, as a result of COVID-19, uh, but in particular, health and social care workers. Um, as many of you will know, the frontline workers, particularly through the NHS, uh, and those who work in the different um, care industries or care groups have, have been impacted, you know, very deeply. Um, also to, and this is something I, when I first started talking about some of this material a few years ago, one of the, one of the groups I had flagged up actually were the Black Lives Matters protests, which are absolutely, you know, around us today, both as a result of the, um, the, the protests and the, the activism around um, the death of, of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, and I should point out Minneapolis is a 30 minute drive, 35 minute drive where I'm sitting right now in Wisconsin. I lived in Minneapolis for many years. I lived in the neighborhood for many years that George Floyd um, was, uh, was killed in. But that I think the, the Black Lives Matter protesters actually, the, those protests, that protest movement actually is, is, is a, makes complete sense in terms of trying to understand political movements around um, awareness of death and that those are, the Black Lives Matter protests are absolutely a, a legacy of 1970s protests, but I actually would also say um, protests around HIV AIDS. It makes sense that you're trying to draw attention to marginalized groups and that there's a politics around it. But also too, I, would, I think that, it, that the, the, the mortality rates amongst um, Black Asian and minority ethnic communities, um, Black and Brown communities, communities of color, we can use a, a wide uh, you know, range of terms for this, that those are, that those are um, large and substantial and that there will be a politics that comes out of it that I think fed into, quite frankly, the protests around um, George Floyd's death, but that going forward, I would expect to see uh, many more protests of that model and of that, of that kind of rage around um, disadvantaged communities dying from uh, the coronavirus and complications from it for lots of different reasons. Um, when we think about what, what happens, sometimes there are longer term outcomes we don't, we don't always foresee. So I'll give you a longer term out, outcome or uh, impact of AIDS. So one of the things that happens, I think, as a result of the HIV AIDS epidemic in the United States is eventually then the recognition and legalization of same-sex marriage or marriage equality. And this is Jim Obergefell. And in 2015, Jim Obergefell, his case, Obergefell v. Hodges, um, was the legal case that made same-sex marriage legal across the United States. Uh, here he is next to his husband, John Arthur, who had ALS, and John Arthur um, was uh, dying when they were able to be married in the state of Maryland, uh, and then they went home to the state they lived in, which was the state of Ohio, which did not recognize same-sex marriage. And so uh, Jim Obergefell took uh, the state of Ohio to court uh, simply because he wanted his name put on the death certificate for John Arthur. Uh, he wanted his name listed as spouse. That's all he wanted. He just wanted to be listed as the spouse of John Arthur uh, in the way that anybody else who was married was. And uh, that ultimately was the case uh, in a five to four decision that made um, same-sex marriage legal in the United States. And I don't think it actually was a coincidence that it, it actually had to do with 
uh, something like a death certificate, something had to be done around death and dying, in part because one of the situations that AIDS created was that it radically changed legal access to not only um, the, the dying in hospitals, as in who had the right to make legal decisions, but it also challenged who had the legal right to the deceased's remains. And this was one of the things that I think has kind of been forgotten about, about an impact of AIDS. So if you go back to the, the literature in the funeral industry in the 1990s, one of the things that funeral directors, particularly in the United States, and the, the laws are different in, in England, they're different in, in Europe, they're different in different parts of the country, but in the United States, um, the family members who were next of kin could make a legal claim to deceased remains that would exclude an unmarried, unlegally recognized partner. In many cases, just added real insult to injury. And so your funeral directors in the literature trying to discuss, like, well, what do we do in terms of determining who has the legal right um, to the remains? And that, that set the stage for a legal challenge. So as far as legal changes, changes that happen going forward with something like the coronavirus, we don't know. There'll be longer term changes, but they're you know, hard to predict uh, until, for example, 35 years later from now. Um, one of the things to always keep in mind, I think that one change that comes out of um, uh, the HIV AIDS epidemic is that, you know, HIV remains a, a global pandemic and a global pandemic particularly affecting um, uh, different parts of the world that are more easily forgotten. And so there's been huge campaigns over the years around, um, in particular, sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but I think that in the West, we tend to forget that something like HIV remains a, an enormous epidemic around the world. Uh, and that if, if I were honest about it, I, I certainly think that coronavirus, both as a, as a virus itself, as you can see from a daily basis, is sweeping around the globe, uh, will, runs, runs the risk of being forgotten about in the developing world. Uh, and that I think in terms of policymaking, but also in terms of care, that that becomes a huge issue. And one that I think AIDS actually has already demonstrated what happens, um, but also how it can be productively uh, dealt with when organizations and uh, different governments choose to, to not think about what's going on in different parts of the world around prevention, prevention and how those things play out. I also think going forward that with, in terms of, um, and this will be one of the, the, I think the key policy areas, this, I, I, I'm gonna predict, and predictions are a tricky thing, that we're gonna see a resurgence of, of um, let's say over 65, uh, over 65 age group, particularly, actually particularly in the UK, of activism around death and dying. There's already groups there that are trying to push around end of life choices and, and care directives. And certainly my, my colleague, um, Kate Woodthorpe has an enormous amount of work around trying to um, encourage or inculcate uh, a, uh, conversations more around end of life uh, decision-making. But I actually think we're gonna see a, a stronger commitment to uh, individuals um, choosing to, for example, die at home if they, if they know that the choice of dying at home or dying at the hospital means if I go into a hospital to die, uh, I won't be able to see any of my family members. And or I think possibly there's going to be a rethinking of uh, access to the dying, access to individuals who have the coronavirus uh, in part uh, as rethinking goes on around um, what family members can do to have access to the, to the dying or to the deceased. So, for example, you know, there are protocols in the books that talk about if someone has an immunocompromised um, uh, condition or they have some kind of potentially contagious decision, it is entirely possible, for example, family members to put on or Mexican to put on PPE to see uh, a an individual, but as we headed into the coronavirus, it became clear that um, uh, there just wasn't enough at the time uh, equipment to go around. And so that's an ongoing issue, but there's nothing necessarily um, from a, a technical standpoint from preventing families from getting in there to see someone who's dying. How that goes forward, I'm not sure, but I think this is going to become an issue where family members simply say, well, the choices between uh, we seeing them and we not seeing them, either we're going to put on the equipment or they're going to die at home. Um, I also think there's going to be an issue around healthcare costs that's going to have to be uh, thought through. And this is both access to care as well as who covers the care. Uh, in the UK, we've got the NHS, and I'm very happy to be someone who lives in the UK, actually, as a, as a dual American-British citizen and who has the NHS. This is going to be a bigger issue, but I think, particularly in the United States going forward. And I'll give you one anecdote about that. 
Um, I mentioned my, I had come home to help my parents when my father was, was hospitalized uh, in, in December and then had a rehabilitation in January. And his hospitalization was for a, a massive cardiac arrest. Um, it had a, he had an um, anoxic brain injury as a result of lack of oxygen. He's more or less fine, so it all worked out in the end. But we didn't know that. And so he was for two weeks in an ICU and then another week in the hospital itself before going to transitional care. Uh, and the hospitalization bill for his care was in US dollars, uh, $420,525.25. Uh, one more time, $420,525.25. And I know all this because he was sent the billing information. Uh, it, was it was accessible online. I could download it into Excel, which I did. Uh, and because my parents both are over 65, they are covered by what's called the United States government's Medicare program, which is a nationalized national healthcare program. So they ended up only paying uh, out of that 420,000, about 1300 uh, US dollars, which for some families would be a stretch, but they could manage it. This is my way of saying that the healthcare bills are gonna start rolling out. And we've already started to see some reporting on this around COVID-19 care, which if you were hospitalized, oftentimes is the most intensive kind of care, particularly in an ICU, particularly with a ventilator, uh, which is what my father was on. And that there's already one case that came out for a gentleman who was in his 70s in, uh, I think it was, it was either, it was in Washington State, I think it was Seattle, where his bill was over a million dollars, uh, US dollars, which I, I completely was not shocked by. He as well was receiving Medicare or the, um, the federal subsidized care because of his age. So he'll end up paying you know, several thousand, let's say $6,000, which again would be a lot for a lot of people. But I think one thing that might come out of the COVID-19 um, experience in the United States, maybe I could be naive on this, is you could see a move towards a more nationalized healthcare um, plan, simply because the bills over time, they won't be paid and it will just become, um, it won't be possible to pay them. That, that people are going to be faced with hundreds of thousands of bill, dollars of bills. Furthermore, uh, after an individual dies, families will oftentimes be sent the, the bill as the next of kin um, to take care of it, as that goes. So I think healthcare is going to be, have to be taken care of. I also think healthcare costs are going to have to be adjusted, and, and many people have already raised this in terms of access to uh, things like treatment, uh, whether it's different drugs that could be possible treatments for something like the coronavirus, this came out of AIDS, or also then treatments to things like vaccines, um, which then leads me to, I think one of the key final points around this is I think if HIV is, is, is taught us anything in terms of the science and medicine, but also just in terms of the, the hope of policymakers is we should always be prepared for there to be no vaccine uh, for the coronavirus. And that, that I, I know that, again, the viruses are very different, you know, squirrels and rabbits, but that I think that the HIV um, experience that is ongoing I think is, if it's taught us anything is that the, the science is such that the promise of vaccines does not always come to fruition. Uh, and that it may, become, it may become necessary to rethink uh, different governmental policy programs around there not being a vaccine, but more of a management in long-term over years. But also to keep in mind that, you know, something like testing takes time even before you get to vaccines. So for example, you know, we've forgotten that it took three years to develop a reliable test for HIV, like three years. So you imagine three years from now in terms of that kind of set of protocols. Now, groups like ACT UP and other activist organizations, they helped different um, uh, you know, testing groups, but also then different government organizations uh, move faster in developing these um, different treatments, but also too, they need to be safe. Uh, and this is gonna be one of the issues going forward, which is, uh, you know, is this vaccine that we want to use going to work or is it going to in fact kill people uh, in its use? And there are instances of that, this happened in polio uh, before a vaccine was withdrawn because it was introduced, you know, too soon. And that would only create further problems with, you know, individuals already prone to reject vaccinations. I think one of the, the last things I want to sort of leave everyone, I'm just going to close with this, is actually it's a quote from Michael Spector, who um, has written for years around, I think, infectious disease and, and, and you know, pandemics and epidemics and wrote some of the, I think, really interesting work in, um, uh, um, around Ebola, but also HIV AIDS. And, and Spector wrote uh, this great um, 
piece in, in the, the New Yorker that I read on the plane flying here from March 17th. Uh, and, you know, I think what he says is, you know, the bigger question is whether we will learn from the fact that this pandemic will kill many more people than it had to. I'd like to think we would, but if the past is any guide, this pandemic will end up with a bunch of new commissions and ominous reports. And as soon as they are printed, they will be forgotten. And I think going forward, this remains one of the, the key, um, if not fundamental and urgent social policy challenges, but also challenges for those of us who work in the history and bioethics, uh, science and technology studies, any number of fields around infectious disease, but also death and dying, is that there's always the challenge that once the report is written, once the commission is done, uh, whatever it is looking at is simply forgotten. And in that, the, the impulse, I think, uh, in terms of a broader social understanding uh, or a broader societal, if you will, forgetting of something like the coronavirus, um, which in some cases, I think some people have said is already taking place, which it, in the US, I think you could point to different states where that is, that is the situation. Um, I think that's going to be a real challenge. And I think that, that one thing I take away from um, it, the setting the history of HIV AIDS is that there will be changes that are made as a result of different groups who are, who are trying to change policy around healthcare and policy around access to care, that, that many of those will be uh, taken on board, many will, will not be taken on board, but that that whole process of how that ever happened will in large part um, be forgotten and that the disease itself always runs the risk of being forgotten. And I think that right now represents a real moment with uh, pandemics and deal with infectious disease outbreaks because if Michael Spector will point anything out to us, um, what is going on right now in terms of a coronavirus pandemic was largely predicted, predicted for years. Uh, and as a, as a person, um, as an academic myself who worked on pandemic response plans uh, for um, the UK government, more on the, the fatality side, mass fatality side or the death side, I can tell you that those plans were not followed. Uh, and um, it will be an ongoing question uh, as to why. Okay, I will leave it there. Thank you, thank you very much. I'll now hand everything back over to Sarah, and I'm happy to field any questions about this, and happy to field any questions anyone has, both around the, the talk itself, but also uh, around COVID-19 uh, that way. Thank you. Okay, thanks, John. Um, so we've had some come in, one from, from Kerry Walden who, who said, as you said, we, we, we still don't have a cure for AIDS. Um, and as you finished with, um, you know, we may not get a cure for coronavirus. Um, do you think that it will become manageable in, in the way that AIDS is? Or is more than it was? <laughs> yeah, sure. No, I know. Yeah, that's a great question. Like, so in what is manageable? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, and again, again, this is going to be before all the, my my medical science colleagues jump in on me and be like, don't compare. Because <laughs> like, we, we, again, we aren't talking about different viruses. I want to be clear about that. Um, so is it manageable? Sure, of course. Of course it's manageable. Um, you know, any infectious disease, uh, that's a big statement. Any infectious disease is manageable. Infectious diseases are manageable. What we're going to have here is a question, I think, about access uh, to treatments, access to management, and, and, and quite frankly, who's going to pay for it? Uh, and, and how that is done globally. Uh, and in trying to create, you know, for example, a if we get to this point, a global vaccination campaign for coronavirus. Uh, one of the one of the unintended consequences uh, of the coronavirus, um, the the rush to work in coronavirus, has been the decline in immunizations for a whole long list of other diseases across the developing world because everyone's attention has been diverted to the coronavirus. Uh, and so that's gonna have impacts. I also think that there, there are, there's a whole long list of, of reasons where you know, the, the secondary deaths uh, will always be an issue where as we divert attention towards something like coronavirus or any kind of infectious disease, you have individuals who are dying from, from other diseases. So for example, cancer, it, where it might've been treatable. And so that, that's gonna become an issue. So is it manageable, is it treatable? Yes. Um, are there models for it? Absolutely. Uh, and I think that, that the, from the political standpoint, the issue is going to be how that's explained to the public. 
and I think that 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 is going to be a you know that's that's a that is a that's where policy and practice really meet because that's going to have to be clearly articulated to the public in trying to create a um, effectively a generational change in how um, everyday life is is lived if it if it gets to that yeah okay um, we've got another question from Sally Rawdon, um, who asks how you understand or analyze the lack of public memorialization around Corona deaths so far in the UK and US. So she sort of mentions the lack of attention in government briefings and statements, things like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's, yeah, I mean, that's a great question around, you know, will there, there's already, the question's already been raised, like, will there be a memorial to the people who died from COVID-19? Um, by which I would just say there's not actually any national memorials. There's very few national memorials. You can find them sporadically, but to something like the 1918 flu influenza. Uh, so there is, there's, a, there's a real politics around memorialization. Um, so I think one thing that you can say about most governments is that they are loath uh, to, to point to how many people are dead, uh, but also are dying or dead from a largely preventable situation. And the, the way that I actually, I equate in some cases the coronavirus deaths right now with another public health um, policy failure, which comes up per periodically, which are heat wave deaths, because heat wave deaths can always be understood as a kind of public health death that is largely preventable. That it is, and in, in during massive heat waves, we'll see these waves of deaths that take place, but they're preventable because largely you can just keep the bodies, you know, keep people in a cooler state. And that is, again, always usually an access issue. So, so going forward, how does the memorialization work around that? Um, I think largely, there will, there will, there could be attempts by different governments to do it. But if I'm honest with you, um, Sally, I think it's, it's largely going to come down to families. And there's already a bereaved families group in the UK that is that created an activist platform to draw attention to the people who died. And I think that that along the lines of a kind of act up, that there's going to be that sort of push for recognition from from government, and that there's going to have to be that kind of activist model that does it. I honestly, I think, I, I don't think that we'll see it come from the, the government side. I don't. So got another question from Elizabeth Harrop, who says she's just curious about clarifying key differences with HIV and COVID-19. Marginalized communities with COVID-19 are globally are women and children. Um, it's women make up the majority of informal workers in developing countries, so affected by lockdown and lack of access to social protection. Um, um, not all are victims of the disease, um, but are also victims of response measures, which is different to HIV, um, because it's not just infection death itself, which affects the marginalized. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think, no, thank you, Elizabeth. It's a key point. Again, I want to make it clear that there are, there are differences. There are, key, there are crucial differences, both in terms of care, in terms of government response, in terms of how the communities are, are dealt with and responded to, um, and you know, how something like a, a lockdown impacts along um, gender lines, as well as uh, I think uh, labor lines, work lines. Absolutely, I mean, these are, these are different political dynamics and I think that they will play out in, in different political ways, but also to around the world, uh, how, diff how this virus impacts already, you know, impacts already marginalized groups is, is crucial. So I wanna be clear about that, that we will see different We'll see, I think we will see different kinds of activism, I think, grow out of the different experiences of it. I think that's what I'm trying to get at. Um, and that it will change the nature of different kinds of activism that way, but that, that different countries need to be thought of in different um, ways, absolutely. And, and that I think is crucial too. Yeah, I mean, one, one, one so um, one quick anecdote about that. So one of the key, there's, there's been, there was, so after, um, um, you know, the death of, uh, recently, the, the, the death of um, Mr. Kramer and, and everyone around ACT UP in, in the gay men's health crisis. There was actually a lot of, you know, celebration of his work. But there are a lot of people who, who came forward and said, you know, like, you know, you know, Kramer was, you know, he was, he was kind of a, a, he wasn't really a leader of anything like ACT UP. There are a lot of different groups of women and, you know, individuals who were, you know, African-American or, Latinx and there's a lot, a lot of different people here, but the thing that 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 um, 
Kramer could do would be that he could get in to talk with someone like Tony Fauci, uh, in part because they recognized him as a as a like a as a white man with a Ivy League education. So he was like, oh, I recognize him that way. So that there was this way that you know the politics of how ACT UP actually worked or sort of the communities they covered got kind of blurred in a way that wasn't actually correct. And so I think that when we think about this, as we begin to, un I think, unfairly homogenize different uh, activist groups and what they do, that those are always the specifics we have to be paying attention to, absolutely. That was a bit of a tangent, but I think it's important to point out. <laughs> the other okay, so um, another question from Caroline Pretty. Um, she said she would be interested in your thoughts on the parallels between HIV AIDS and COVID-19 in terms of fears about the potential risks from dead bodies and how this has led yeah. to restrictions on how people can be with and care for their dead. Yeah, thank you, Caroline. That was, I totally didn't say that. So thank you for that great question. Yeah, so one thing that comes out of the AIDS epidemic very quickly is there was a profound fear uh, around in the funeral industry, in particular, um, in, in a lot of different ways, but I know the funeral industry best, around the handling of, of individuals who died from HIV AIDS, and that that profound fear was that the dead body was contagious that it was a carrier of the HIV virus and that, that there were actually restrictions in place for, for a long time that said, do, you do not let family members touch the deceased from HIV. Now that turned out not to be the case, that, that in many, with proper care, care of the dead, which in many cases just meant proper refrigeration, the virus died. Uh, and that was HIV and so it quickly became clear, but it took many years, when I say quickly, I'm talking a number of years to actually get to that point where it was clear that that the body was the the virus was more or less inert that it was okay to touch the body. I would say that I think that with with coronavirus right now that the, the concerns around being able to touch it down again, uh, coronavirus is a respiratory disease, and I want to be very clear that that has a different kind of um, it, it's just a, it's a different it's a different virus that way. But that it it may end up I think in the long run, so a number of years from now, it may turn out that the the prohibitions against touching the deceased or being around the deceased may may turn out to have, have been largely unfounded, but we don't know. We need more research around that. As of right now, I think based on what the CDC has said and other European partners have said that with proper, uh, you know, handling of the dead, um, that there, there, there doesn't necessarily need to be a restriction on, for example, family members being able to touch the deceased if they want to. However, there's going to need to be more research. And I think that will be one of the great going forward, because again, we're in the middle of all this, we'll rethink uh, this period and we'll, we'll see what was going on. But it's interesting to note that, you know, when you get thrown into these pandemic situations, um, those, those expectations change. So I think that, that we'll see those, we'll see those rules change, but it, you know, it's going to take time. Okay. And then one final question. Please. Uh, from Emma Rich, what kind of communalities and differences are there between public communication of responses to AIDS or COVID-19 in terms of trust and expertise? Um, it's been argued that the speed of politics exceeds the science in the case of COVID-19 and it's possibly undermined the trust in science. Yeah. Uh, that's a great question. Um, yeah, I, so I, yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, I think that, that you know, I, I was just thinking about the speed of politics point because I, I was actually sort of thinking about Virilio's writing about speed and acceleration of politics in the 1970s, right? He's writing about this. And I think that the, there is a real issue. Um, you know, I know the UK government and I know the, the US government best. And I think, uh, you know, just a real... Um, from a policy standpoint, making of promises that are just not possible, like things that aren't there. But also too, I'll tell you right now that one of my, one of the the, the organizations, but websites I, I, I check every day and especially over the weekends is the Retraction Watch uh, website, which, which covers retractions in the academic literature across all fields. And there's, there's, and this has been flagged up now. There's a real issue around a rush to publish uh, um, research around coronavirus, which I think everyone understands. But then a lot of it just being retracted, or a lot of it being done too quickly. 
but also too, I think not a, there needs to be better for those of us who work in science communication, there needs to be a better communication and, and explanation to the public, but also policymakers, quite frankly, in, in understanding, you know, the differences between, you know, a pre-press non-peer-reviewed article, a peer-reviewed article, but then also a peer-reviewed article that may have to be corrected or an article that has to be retracted and why those reasons are. But that, that these dynamics that go into, again, a sort of like the human hope of technology to solve the problems, that they really feed into, uh, in oversimplifying of the complexities that we're talking about. And so once you get the policymakers, I think they're always going to be looking for, not always, many of them, many of them, not all of them, will be looking for the easiest soundbite uh, or the easiest, uh, you know, two word, three word explanation. And I, that's just not, I don't think that's possible going forward. Um, and if we take the hypothetical, for example, that there, uh, if we take the hypothetical that a vaccine is not possible, just a hypothetical, I mean, the research is ongoing, we don't know. How that is explained to the public, I think is gonna be crucial, right? And how that is understood um, is going to be crucial. Um, because I think that in, if, you can, if we learn anything, I think from the 19, early 1990s around HIV was, and I remember all this, it was, the, the publishing of all the hopes around the research around this vaccine. And then it just became clear it was just never gonna happen. So I, I think that there is, there is a real, there's a, um, there's a real issue with that. And I think that, that there's gonna be, a, those, those of us who work in social policy and, and digital communication and social platform, you know, social media platforms, that's gonna be a real issue too. Um, but also too, like, man, you know, I think we should all get ready for, I don't think we've begun to see really the full, if you will, the, the full horizon yet, even of conspiracy theories of um, uh, any number of things. And that, that's only, I think a lot of it's only in some ways going to uh, get worse. So, you know, I, on an individual level, I think we need to communicate these points as, you know, to the best of our abilities. Okay, so I think, that's probably our lot for today. That's fine. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've said more than enough. It's older research, but I think ongoing research going into this, and this is one of those areas I'm interested in trying to tackle. And I think that that it, there's, there's always a danger in trying to overly interpret the current events through the lens of previous events. However, I do think that the past events in like HIV can offer us uh, a way of thinking um, thinking what could happen in the future, and, and that I think is valuable. Okay, so as as John said, thank you everyone for joining us and thank you to John for all that that has now given us to think about. And thank you everyone.